Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. So we are in week two of this new series called Retold. Lucinda kicked us off last week, and it's kind of taking a deeper look at um, stories that we were told in Sunday school or as growing up and, and re- looking at them at a deeper level. So last week we looked at, at Lazarus being raised from the dead, and it was more than just Lazarus being raised from the dead, but it was that Jesus is declaring that he is the resurrection and asking us if we truly believe that. And uh, this week... We're diving into another story. This one is often thought of more as a children's story. Um, for example, my daughter that's in preschool brought this home on Friday. And so you'll know immediately what we're talking about today. All right? This is uh, Noah's Ark, right? And then Noah's Ark, what do you think about when you think about the story of Noah's Ark? You think about the rainbow. You think about the twosies by twosies, right? They've got little animals in here. There's two elephants that she colored, uh, two rabbits, two dogs. I don't, I'm not sure that they had dogs, but you, you get the point, okay? So there's this sense of, there's this children's story. Um, the deeper level, I wish this was mine, but it's not. It belongs to my brother. He uh, made this when he was six years old, right? And, uh, oh, wow. and even won an, an award of excellence. You can tell it's, it's been a while. It's a little gross, right? Noah's Ark, right? You see, we've got the twosies by twosies again, the rainbow. We've got this boat floating on water. It's always this bright, colorful uh, narrative about how God comes and he rescues Noah and his family. And, you know, there are some biblical stories that are told to kids and they're kind of transformed into a moral, like you better behave so that God will save you type thing. And Noah can get that. But one of the things that the children's story that I've seen happen is that they focus on the rescuing aspect of Noah's Ark. And I think that gets to the heart of the story. So I don't want to bash all of the children's curriculum, okay? I think that gets to the heart of the story because ultimately this is a rescue mission, but it is not a children's story. If you go and you dive deep, and we're not going to read the whole thing because it covers three chapters in Genesis. We're looking at six through nine, and there are some crazy stuff. We're going to address some of it. We're not going to actually get to some of the things that happened post-flood, but I mean, it is... 
not a children's story, okay? So let's just get that out of the way. It goes much deeper, and it's much more real, and it's a huge point to how we are rescued by our Creator God. Um, do you Did you guys ever do the thing in grade school where your teacher had you uh, write instructions for making out a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Is this just me? I thought it was like a common thing, but I'm learning it wasn't. Okay, so let me unpack it quickly. All right, because we got a lot of ground to cover today. But the teacher would say, write me instructions for making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And ultimately, you'd have someone who, like me, who like doesn't want to do the work. So I'm just like, take the peanut butter, take the jelly, and you put it on the bread, right? So then the teacher gets in front of the class. She reads my instructions, and she takes the jar of peanut butter and the jar of jelly and sits it on top of the loaf of bread, right? because she followed my instructions perfectly. Other kids are like, you take it out of the jar and you spread it on the bread, but they don't say to use a knife or a spoon. So she sticks her hand down in the jar of jelly and rubs it all over the bread and she'll put it on both. The point being, you got to have all of the details in your instructions, right? So when we go and we look and we read the story of Noah and the ark and the, and the, the waters prevailing, the instructions are not all there. You cannot take the instructions given to Noah, even if you translate the measurements into our common measurements, and build a successful boat. It's not possible. So what we know when we go and we look at this text, we know that the author is using the instructions that they actually put on paper for us to, to point us to a certain message. They include the instructions that they include for a reason, to draw the reader in and communicate that message. Now we're going to get into the weeds a little bit today, okay? So you might want to take some notes, drink your coffee. I hope it's not boring, but it's, we're, we're getting into the weeds. And point being is I think that we need to get to the message that the author is trying to tell. The first thing we need to realize is that the ark is not a boat. Now, I'm not saying that this story didn't happen. We're going to get there, okay? But when you think of boat, you think of captain, you think of sails or oars or rudders. When I was telling Lauren about this, I said udders. She said, make sure you don't say udders. <laughs> okay, and the, 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 there wasn't a way of traveling. Now, the ark was definitely seaworthy. I want to quote Lawson Stone. He says that it had to be seaworthy, of course, but otherwise, we shouldn't have scenes when we're talking about telling the story of Noah. We shouldn't have scenes of Noah standing at the tiller in the rain, desperately trying to find his way and stay on course like Gilligan and Skipper. No, the, the message of Noah's craft is ride it out. Ride it out. There's no mention of sails, no mention of rudders, no mention of oarsmen. There's no way that Noah can control where this ark is going he and his family and the animals are along for the ride. Wherever God takes them, wherever the seas go, where however it moves, they have no control over where this vessel goes. Michael Morales says this. It says, this was no boat and Noah was no captain steering his own fate. Indeed, the ark was completely given over to the sovereign guidance of God. And that seems to be the emphasis of the narrative. The ark, yes, while it was a floating vessel, it was not just a boat. It was a means of salvation. 
see where we're going. It was a means of being saved. In fact, if you go, here we're getting in the weeds, brace yourself. Okay, if you go and you look at the Hebrew word for ark, it is teba. And this is actually a loan word, okay? So this is a word that the Hebrew people stole, borrowed, used from the Egyptian language. I've got a hair floating in my glasses. Okay, and so what it is, is this, and we do this too. If you think about the word angel, Angel is just the Greek word spelled in English letters. All right, the word technically means messenger, but when we read the Bible, we don't see messengers, we see angel because we've taken the Greek word, we spelled it with English letters. That's what the Hebrews have done. They have taken, or that's what he, the, the language has done. They've taken this Egyptian word and they've spelled it in Hebrew letters. So what this word in, in the Egyptian language is this big coffin-sized vessel and it's often used, it's often made out of wood. Sometimes it's more luxurious out of certain uh, metals or stones and things like that, jewels. But often it's made out of wood. And then inside of it, it houses an idol of one of the Egyptian gods. And in times of victory or festivals, this coffin type thing with an idol inside of it is sat and floated down the Nile River. Come on, you see what's happening, right? There is an image of a God put in a vessel and floated down a river. The author of Hebrews is saying, listen, we don't have some kind of false image. We have an image bearer. And God has set this vessel to rescue this image bearer from a catastrophe, from the chaos that is going on. The ark is a thing that's taking, listen, that we see in Genesis that the image of God has been marred in his creation. Sin has entered the picture and it has marred this image. And God is saying, now I'm going to rescue my image by putting it in this vessel that is going to be floated down the water. This is a means of saving a broken image bearer. This is a means of of God rescuing his creation. So the ark is not merely a boat. It is a mean means of salvation. The flood was not merely a natural disaster. Now it was natural and it was a disaster. Okay, I want to get that out of the way. But it was so much more. God looked and he saw that everything was nothing but evil and we're going to get there. And so in this moment, This catastrophe happens, and it wipes the earth of all of that evil. Now, I've seen this because this is God judging creation, that it has been so damaged and broken and marred that it needs to be wiped clean. So it's an act of God's judgment and is a natural disaster. But the problem is, this has been turned into a tool that whenever something bad happens to a group of people, that there are a section of Christians, call themselves Christians, who say, this is God's judgment on you. But if you listen to that and you notice their message, you'll see that God never brings his judgment on them. It's always the other people. I think about uh, several years ago, the shooting that happened at the, the gay nightclub and how so many people were like, oh, this is God's judgment on them. That's not how God works. Okay, this is, this is a natural disaster that is an act of God's judgment, but it is not just this judgmental act. This is actually a rescue plan, and we're going to get there. 
So when we look at this story and we see this natural disaster that does happen, we have to understand that it's more than that. This is more than just some kind of bad flood, bad thing that has happened. This is actually a decreational event. Okay, this is an uncreating of things that have been made. Listen to this. This is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's Genesis 1.1. Genesis 7.18. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. You see it? You see, the, the, the writer is taking us back. He's saying that this is not just a, a, an image of a bad natural disaster. This is creation being undone. If you go and you read the Genesis, the beginning in the creation story, you see that the world is, is uh, formless and void. And over that formless and void, the, the image of that is chaotic waters. And so then God enters the picture and he creates this expanse to open up the waters. The the image is this this bubble, this expanse that separates the waters above from the waters below. And so you have this image of this bubble that's been created. And this bubble is this place where creation can begin to happen. God separates the chaotic water. Now this, listen, this isn't scientific. The Bible wasn't written as a scientific document. It's written to tell the story of a creator God. And so the the point of this is that the writers and, and at this time, did not have any idea of the atmosphere and space and, and where water was coming from. They're trying to show a picture that water is this chaotic place that they know nothing about. And that's how the world was. And a creator God came in and he separated the waters above and the waters below and created this space for creation to happen. It's this biosphere of fragile but protected existence. And in Genesis, we are told that the windows of heaven open up, the frame comes down, the fountains of the great deep are broken up, water's coming from below and above. I don't know if you guys have seen the the Russell Crowe Noah movie, okay? And that movie, it shows like water bursting up through the ground. And I think this is an accurate depiction of what's going on. We don't have all the details, okay? So there's a, we're allowed room for imagination, but there's this image of this water coming from the below, water coming from What's happening is it's not just rain, but it's a piercing of this biosphere. It's the bursting of the bubble and the waters from above and the waters below flowing back together, together in effect, un or decreating the world. This is not a kid's story. This is terrifying. Wiping out an entire race. I remember, in, uh, I think it was like, I was in high school, so I think... I looked up the information, but I didn't write it. I think it was 2004, the flood or the tsunami that hit Asia. And I can remember uh, students walking around school, collecting funds and doing everything we could to support that because of the images and the things that came out of this place was horrific. The loss of life, the damage of the land. I mean, it was absolutely terrible. And we think about this decreation event. That's the image we get. It's not water slowly rising and picking the boat up so it floats gently away. This is a catastrophic decreation event. Terrifying. Not a kid's story. Now, when you start talking about how the, the imagery of decreation and the, thing, the, the 
flood not being a natural disaster, the ark not necessarily being a boat, there comes a question, especially in our post-enlightenment age, did this really happen? Okay, and this is a fair question, and I've had my faith challenged by this. Um, if you believe, because some of the details are hard to understand. It says that the, every mountain was covered, and it gives a specific uh, distance, a measurement for how the mountains are covered. But if we go and we look at just Mesopotamia, which is, we're going to get there, where this is happening, the, the t- largest mountain just in that area, which isn't even the largest mountain on the earth, if that mountain is covered, there's not enough water on the planet to make that happen. And so the question is, where did this water come from? And then after the flood, where did it go? Now, God is the creator God. This is his story. He can do it miraculously. He made the water appear and he took the water away. And that says it, that does it. If that's you, I applaud your faith. That is a great place to be. That is a perfectly fine answer to this question. I find myself more skeptical and I find myself wanting to see and hear evidence. So if you're like me, Tune in for the next like five or so minutes because we're going to get into it. If you're the first category, like God just did it miraculously, you can play on your phone. You don't have to listen to this, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm jealous of, your, of where you're at. I think that's a, a faithful view, okay? But if you're like me, I want to give some insights into why I think the flood is a real event, all right? The first is this, the area where Noah lived, Mesopotamia, okay? In this area, you've got these two huge rivers, the Euphrates, Euphrates, if I said that right, and the Tigris that come down the other side. This is where historians, not just Christian historians, historians in general believe that civil, that is the birthplace of civilization. This is where it all kind of started happening, all right? And in this area, you see a quick urbanization of cultures. You see through archaeology and things like that, that, that urbanization began, began to happen in this area of Mesopotamia. Also in this area, it is known for catastrophic floods. So in 1920s, a guy named Sir Leonard Woolley, what a name, he's excavating the town of Ur, which is Abraham's hometown, and he found a 12-foot thick layer of flood, that de- a flood deposit that dates back to the 4th millennium B.C., There are multiple other cities in the surrounding area that have similar flood deposits of the same size dating back to the mid to late 3rd millennium B.C. So the material remains of this area let us know that floods of ruinous proportions were common. So we have the area known for flooding. We have evidence of massive catastrophic floods in this area. So that's where he was. We also have stories of other people groups in this Mesopotamian region, epic texts as they're called. So you have the one is called the Sumerian King. And in this document, it divides the monarchy of Sumer, if I said that right. And it lists them as these great mighty kings who existed before the flood swept over the earth. This is not from God's people. This is not a Christian document. This is a, from another people group. And then it has a second set of kings who are lesser, not as great, but still kings that existed after the great flood. There's another document. You may have heard of this one. It's a little more popular called the Epic of Gilgamesh. right? And in the Epic of Gilgamesh, you have this hero, Gilgamesh, and he is the only... Um, 
And he goes to the only immortal human of his time, all right? And this immortal human, I can't say his name, we're going to call him Ute because it starts with U-T, okay? He asked U-T, he asked Ute how, you, how he gained his immortality, and Ute responds with a story about how the Mesopotamian god warns him that the other gods are mad at the people. They are noisy and they are bothersome humans. And so he warns this guy and this guy decides that he's going and and what they're going to do is they're going to flood and destroy all of the human race. So what this guy does, you'll never guess. He builds a boat and he fills it with his family and the whole animal kingdom and he saves humanity. And as a reward for his courageous effort, he is gifted with immortality. Now, here's the fun part of this story. It is repeated in multiple people groups, and the only thing they change is the name of the hero to fit their people group. All right? So we've got these ancient documents from all of these ancient people groups, and they all say that the flood happened. And the flood wasn't just a bad day. It literally shapes how they track their history. When they're telling the story of where they came from and how their people came to be, when they're telling the story of their royalty, what they do is they use the flood as a marker for their history. So listen, when when uh, this, this proves that this narrative is not just some made-up, artful storytelling. It's not just a fancy illustration to tell us about God. I'm going to quote Sandra Richter. She says that the geography, the climate, the archaeology, the epigraphy, which is the storytelling of this ancient Mesopotamia, all point in the same direction. Long, long ago, there was a catastrophic flood that deeply embedded itself in the memory of the people of that region. The flood happened. It became a way for all of humanity to tell the story of themselves and their God. So this catastrophic flood, big enough to wipe out an entire race of people, came in and did this kind of damage. Now, I have a very empathetic personality, and I hear this and I picture this and it breaks my heart. And so I am troubled, and I have to ask God, why would something like this happen? I don't know if that's you. You may be one of those people who are evil and sinful, and God got rid of them, okay? I don't fall in that camp. (laughs) And so I ask myself, okay, if the flood really happened, why would this happen? And we get our answer in Genesis uh, chapter 6, verse 5. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in, in the earth and that every intention of every thought of his heart was only evil continuously. The other ancient stories picture these gods as being angry at a human race for being annoying. Later, these gods realize, oh no, we've messed up. We need humans to be our slaves. We need humans to do the dirty work for us. And so they destroy humans for being annoying, and then they repent of their destroying of them and reward the the hero with immortal life for allowing them to save their slave race. That's not the picture we get with the flood. What we get is a rescue mission. Not one that is bothered, not a God who is bothered by his creation, but one that is brokenhearted by their sin. Verse 6 says, Then the Lord regretted that he had made them on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. 
Now we hear that and it sounds pretty similar to the other ones, but this isn't a a regret that, oh man, I'm sorry I made a mistake. That's what we think of when we hear regret. God didn't make mistakes, okay? He doesn't make mistakes. This is God regretting because he looks at all the evil that is being done by his creation, how this creation is destroying itself, how it's hurting its fellow neighbor, it's destroying all of creation around it, and it breaks his heart. He is grieved at what sin has done. This is not the story of a God who destroys humanity, but rather rescues it. Genesis 6, 17 through 19 says this, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which in which the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. It's God talking to Noah. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall become and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and and of every living thing of all flesh. From the very beginning of this narrative, we don't see a God who's coming to to destroy humanity and one human accidentally saves humanity. From the very beginning, God picks out Noah who is righteous in his eyes, who has found favor in his eyes. From the very beginning, God sees this as a rescue mission. He's going after his human race. He's going after his image bearers to save them from themselves. This is a God who rescues, not a God who destroys. Now, we just talked about how this is a decreation event. So, how could it be a rescue mission? Well, to get there, we got to cover some, we're going to get in the weeds again, okay? Stay with me. I know this is long, but I think we need to cover this stuff because if you go and you read Genesis 1 through 5, you're going to be like, huh? Do what? So, I'm going to read it now. We're going to unpack this a little bit to continue the story of seeing how God rescues, okay? So, this is. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 5. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them as their wives, any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and and also afterwards, when the Son of God came in to the daughters of man, and the sons of gods came into the daughters of men. They bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in all the earth, and that every intention of every thought of his heart was only evil continually. Okay, so we got some sons of gods and daughters of, of man. They get married. They do married things. And then you have... Nephilim, who are these giants of renown, these men of old. And there are a hundred, not a hundred, there's like five different views of what's going on here because it's, it's weird. What is, and we don't have time to unpack all of them. I'm going to quickly unpack a few of them and then tell you where I land, okay? The first one is that it's what we see, that you have fallen angels and human women and they get married, they do marry things, and you have these hybrid warriors. Think like Hercules in Greek mythology. The problem with this view is that Matthew 22, 29-31 says that angels can't do this. Okay? So I don't fall here. Some will say, some will say that the angels, the fallen angels, demons, possessed human men and then made it happen. Okay, but I don't think that's an accurate of what's going on. Okay, another one says it's royalty marrying common people. And then that's just the sons of gods and the daughters of men. And the Nephilim is separate. It's just, just the mighty warriors of this day. 
And then there's a third one, and the problem with the first two is they're trying to explain why the flood happened, which is what we're getting at, right? And they use these verses 1 through 4 to explain why the flood happened. The problem is we don't need verses 1 through 4 because we have verse 5. We know that it's only evil all the time continuously. That's the reason for the flood. So verses 1 through 4 don't belong in chapter 6. Now, I know you can be, wait a minute, you can't mess with the Bible. The numbers... And the chapters, that was added later, okay? So this is, my wife teaches English. You ready for this? A lot of people view this as a prologue, a story for why the flood happens. I view this as an epilogue, the end of Adam's age. So we're trying to figure out how we get from Adam to Noah, and they fall right after each other. So a lot of times we think that, you know what, Noah and Adam could have known each other. But no, it takes a long time for all of humanity to only be evil continuously all the time. This is thousands and thousands of years between Noah, between Adam and Noah. And so this verse is, it's like C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia when it says the daughters of Adam the daughters of Eve and the sons of Adam. This is just a poetic way of saying this is how humanity got from Adam to Noah. And the Nephilim are the great warriors of this day. They are violent. This word has a, a, a fallenness nature to it. So they are violent, fallen warriors is what it's pointing at. And we know that it can't be a reason for the flood because it says until this day. So the Nephilim survived the flood. How are they going to do that if the point of the flood was to destroy them? So that's where I fall. That, that Those verses belong the end of chapter 5. And chapter 6 kicks off with verse 5. Every intention of every thought of every heart was only evil continually. This is repeated in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Murder, violence, corruption. That is what characterized Noah's world. Everywhere you looked was destruction. That was the only category that was happening. In Genesis 1, we see that God created order. And with the fall, sin began to wreak havoc and cause disorder, slowly creating more and more disorder. Creation was constantly harming and killing itself. No good remained. And the only future for creation was a slow, painful demise. So God decided to start over. And yes, this choice results in worldwide catastrophe. We see in Genesis 6, 7, So the Lord said, I will blot out every man who I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But more importantly, it's not just a catastrophic story. It's a second chance. Because right after that verse, it says in verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The second we find out that God is going to wipe the earth, a champion is introduced. A champion named Noah, whose name means rest. And God instructs him to build this vessel of salvation and will fill it with the creatures of earth. And once this decreational event occurs, washing the earth of the sins of Adam's generation, something incredible happens. Wind blows over the land, over the water, and the land comes forth. The same word for wind is the word for the Spirit. Come on, think about Genesis 1, the Spirit hovering over the waters. 
all of the created animals leave the ark and fill the earth. Noah is given a covenant and a command, and his command is to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to and that the fear of every creature will will be the fear of them will be in every creature. You see how Genesis 9 echoes Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. This becomes a re-creation event. You have a decreation that leads to the rescue of, of all of creation by having a re-creation event. From the very beginning of the story, God had a plan to rescue his image bearers. Do you see how that compares to other ancient Mesopotamian literature? For them, their gods hated humanity. They regretted destroying them because they needed a slave race. But the God of the Bible so loved his creation that he regretted how evil they had become, so he decided to rescue and restore them. In the garden, his people, in the garden, God had his people and he had them in his place and they were with his presence. Sin took all of that away. And God's covenant with Noah, he begins to reestablish that. Now he has chosen a covenant, he made a covenant, he has his people back. And as you continue to read the story of God's people, he begins to get his people, his presence, and his place back. And it all happens in one person, Jesus. If you look at those other ancient stories, they always refer to the post-flood humanity as an inferior compared to the pre-flood generations. But that not, that's not how the Bible puts it. The flood is seen as an act of God to rescue humanity from themselves. It is to offer our corrupt race a second chance. So here's the ending. Thanks for staying with me, okay? We've got a little bit, but this is the last part. So what? Okay, God has this rescue plan. God saved all of humanity. What does that have to do with me? Do you remember how we talked about how the ark was not a boat? It was used by God to be a vessel to save his image bearers. In 614, Noah's given instructions on how to build this. And it says, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood and make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Again, we miss this because we're not reading the Hebrew, but the word for pitch is kopher. The wood used for the ark is gopher. Gopher wood covered with kopher. Gopher, kopher. I mean, come on. I mean, there's this poem here. There's this, there's this picture, and that, that, that rhyming is meant to draw us in to pay attention to what's going on. And we miss it in the English, but if you go and you see that in the Hebrew, it takes you in and makes you say, okay, why use this word kopher? Why, why pitch? What could, it, what could be the point of this writing? Well, if you go and you look at this word kopher and you look at what it can mean, yes, it can mean pitch, but it can also mean price of life, ransom, or atonement. You see it? Yes, for humanity, Noah's Ark marks a second chance. But we know how the story goes. We know that they need a third and a fourth and a millionth more chance and a million more chances because sin was still a problem. But one day that sin will be atoned for once and for all. The price of life will be paid. The ransom for sin will be dealt on the cross. His name won't be Noah, but you will find rest in him. 
Jesus is our ark. He is our rescuer. In him, we have redemption. In him, we get that next chance. But unlike Noah, we get a second chance after evil has been defeated. See, Noah gets off the boat. He has this covenant with God. He makes an altar. He worships him, but then he plants a vineyard. And in that vineyard, he gets drunk, passes out naked on his living room floor, and has this incredible, I'm not going to unpack it today, horrible experience in sin with one of his sons. And we see that sin still plagues humanity. But in Jesus, sin has lost its power. In Jesus, the evil has been defeated. And our second chance through Christ, we can succeed. Humanity's second chance came post-catastrophe. Matthew 16.25 says that for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. David Kinman says that the church has done a good job of preparing this generation for success, but not for suffering. There are many times in our life where we face catastrophe. We face that rock bottom moment. And our life may feel formless and void like we have had our own decreation event. But listen to me, this is an invitation. It's an invitation to get on the ark. It's an invitation to lay down your life, to surrender it all to Jesus and let him be the sustainer of your soul. He is our vessel of salvation. In him, we are made new. We are a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new is here. You are invited not into the Noah's covenant, but into a new covenant. You have not been washed by flood waters that cover the earth, but you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. He is our ark. In him we have atonement. The rescue mission for humanity was Noah and his ark. The rescue mission for all of humanity is Jesus Christ. He is where we find life. He is where we get our recreation. The whole point of the Noah's Ark story is to take this catastrophic event and point to God who is our rescuer. The same God that tells the ocean just how far it can come. Made known in Jesus Christ who is on the boat when the ocean is raging and he speaks peace over that ocean and he calms the storm because Jesus has the same power. He is God incarnate. He is our salvation. He is our ark. It's not just a children's story. But what the children's story get right is that it's a rescue mission. Jesus is our rescuer. Let's pray.